Well, it was just like a like a mix of emotions where you were part of this, but also like you were the software that they were using to make this happen. It wasn't only because of you. It was because of this like huge group of people that all got together to make this happen. And it was like the largest election of the time that I was a part of. So it was just like a mix of emotions that was like brand new to me to, to experience. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Joshua Bartley. He is a co-founder of Campaign Deputy, software built for fundraising, communications, and compliance for Democrats. I asked Joshua a lot of questions about how he and his co-founder bootstrapped their company. I really enjoyed the chance to hear his story and explore his thinking about how their team fits in and makes decisions in a complicated political ecosystem. It's a good episode. You should listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Joshua Bartley at Campaign Deputy. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Joshua, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. So I'm Joshua Bartley, one of the co-founders of Campaign Deputy. I've been doing software development since around 2002. And in 2017, my co-founder, Justin Thurman, we were actually working together at the time. And he said, have you heard of this thing called call time? And I said, no, tell me about call time. He's like, well, I, could you write a, an app for a call time? And at that time, I was in the corporate world. I've been in the corporate world for a very long time at that point. I actually started in like startups in early 2000. And it was very interesting to want to get back into that. So we worked together and built a call time app. And that's how co-founder and I got together on things. I could go into like huge details about, you know, my career as myself, but that's like 20 years of just corporate CRMs and finance kind of things, which are not very exciting, <laughs> which is part of the reason why I wanted to start a company. Tell me a little bit about where you grew up, what kind of family, what kind of education you had. So I grew up in Southern Indiana. We was actually just talking last night about a the town I initially grew up in until about the first grade was so small. You could see the entering and exit sign from the same spot. You could read both. It's really tiny. Uh, the fire station for the city was basically on the top of hill. You had to grab a hose and hopefully your house wasn't on fire. Moved to New Albany, Indiana, 
where I went all the way through high school. And Nobody, Indiana, their high school actually had a computer programming course, which was pretty new for you know public education at that time. At that point, I got my first programming job at 16 in Louisville, Kentucky. What were you working on? In what sort of what sort of language and what sort of job as a sixteen year old programmer? <laughs> oh, those those languages are mostly dead now. Uh, everything but JavaScript is dead. So back then, it was something called ASP, Active Server Pages, and now it's called Classic ASP because it's vintage. And those, I'm trying to think. Like we had one contract at that time for the postal service. It was the the zip code machine. So if you couldn't automatically scan the zip code on an envelope, there was a person with a terminal that typed in the zip code and then it would send that the right way. There were a few other kind of small things working on that time. There was a a electronic job board that that company had. And we also had a contract for the American printing house for the blind, which was not a great project because we never tested it for a screen reader and it wasn't in the initial sales contract. So that was my first experience for accessibility. <laughs> and those were sort of the jobs I was working on uh, at that time at, you know, basically 16. Yeah. And you studied computer science in college? Kind of. <laughs> so I went to IU, IUS, it's uh, IU Southeast and entered into their computer science program and talked to the professor of the computer science program and said, is there any way I could skip intro to programming? Like, I don't feel like I I need these classes. And that was all Java-based. So I brought in code that I had written in, you know, VB5, VB6, and was able to get into kind of the higher level, like algorithm courses and things at IU Southeast, But there were some financial issues at that time where my parents couldn't afford to basically pay for college. And I didn't want them to basically go into a massive amount of debt to do that. So I dropped out of college at that point and just kept working as a programmer at small companies that would bring someone on in the early 2000s without a computer science degree. Which is not uncommon. I remember hiring people without without degrees or without computer science degrees in particular. And depending on the, the job and how much training, you know, in algorithms or something like that was required for front end coding or something that that never made a difference. The smaller companies were more okay with it. The larger companies, so when I eventually went to a company called Hillary Lyons, I actually had to meet with the CTO to basically say, please hire me, even though I don't have a college degree and I'm the only person you've ever hired without a college degree. Did you ever go back and get that degree? Uh, Yes. So I took classes off and on. Hillier Lines actually had a tuition assistance program. So I was able to take some classes, but they were also very strict. And I couldn't take a 3 p.m. class and leave work for it. (laughs) So it was kind of chicken and egg problem there. And then I eventually went back and switched my major to business administration, uh, especially in information systems, and got a associate's degree 
and that from a college in northern Indiana, but all through online. Got it. And that's the, and that's your education besides the real world education you've had as a software developer for many years. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's a weird mix of education. But yeah, that's that's where I've landed on the ed- education front along the way, like growing up and through these years as a developer. Were you a political person? I I was very much not a political person. I was I was aware of it and I I stayed very very far away from it. It just wasn't interesting to me. Southern Indiana is also like mostly conservative Republicans. Indiana's pretty much red state except for the one blip in I think it was Obama 2008 that <laughs> accidentally went blue somehow. Yeah, I just wasn't really connected on the political side of things. I had, you know, my own like viewpoints, but it it really didn't like truly form until I'd say like m- middle of like 2010s, especially like Trump, of course. But like even before then, I was like, this is I need to pay more attention to this. Like I I can't can't no longer not pay attention to this. We don't have your co-founder Justin here, but tell me his story briefly. I noticed that he was a finance director for the Kentucky governor, right? Yes. Or or deputy finance director. Yes. He, I think he got his start all the way back with Steve Bashir and worked with Steve Bashir as, as a staffer and then worked with Andy on his attorney's general race. So he was a, a staffer, and I know he, him and Andy kind of joke about just the sheer amount of time they spent in a car traveling the entire state of Kentucky for, for that race. And yeah, so his, his political experience is that I, I know there's some, he went to Western Kentucky, I'm pretty sure, and had some political experience there of, you know, student council and things like that. But I do believe it started with Steve Bashir back in, 2000, 2008 or seven or nine. Kentucky has an odd year elections. I always get mixed up on the dates. Yeah. Well, you've gone and mixed me up too now. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that. So what of all of these years you mentioned working in CRM and financial apps, it sounds like what from that programming experience and that business experience was most valuable that you brought to the startup and maybe also answer for your co-founder. Yeah. So for my, my personal experience, those first, I would say like 10 years as a software developer, agile wasn't really a thing at that time. Everything was pretty much waterfall, but we kind of worked in an agile methodology, especially at the smaller companies where a client would call and say, Hey, I have this problem. Can you fix it? We're like logging into the server, fixing it by hand, like while they're on the call, trying to figure out the features, trying to figure out everything directly with the client. And like, I love that. Like that was very like rewarding. It was fun. It was exciting. There was no meetings about meetings about meetings that were kind of part of, you know, the larger like corporations. And then the same thing at, when I got to Hilary Lyons, they put us in charge of a rewrite project that we got to interface directly with the 
basically end users of the staff of the company to rebuild the transaction processing system. Yes, it was called TPS and there were TPS reports. <laughs> that was also very fun. It was very exciting. It was also heavily audited. So we had SEC auditors, we had FINRA auditors, we had Sarbanes-Oxley auditors. And that was my first real experience writing like detailed financial applications. And that experience has paid like huge dividends in the compliance world. But that first part of really interacting with those like customers directly as kind of like a product manager is what I, I really love. So, yeah. How about your uh, co-founder? What sort of, what do you think he brings from his work experience? Both, he was working at a tech firm with you, you said, where, where you got to know each other, but also in politics. He taught me about call time. <laughs> I didn't know what call time was. He, he taught me about that, taught me about the day-to-day -day workers of like a fundraising staff, how that whole process works brings like a huge amount of experience into when we like started building it, like all that, like feeding into it. So, you know, his experience is like great on that. He's also well connected, you know, in Kentucky politics nationally as well. So that really brings a lot to the company as a whole. And then from his experience working at that tech company as well, just understanding the, the technology about, kind of the difficulties of, of building software, like sure it's a button, but like that button could take an hour to make, or it could take two weeks to make you, you don't know, there's a lot behind it. So that kind of understanding also helps when we're like working out features and trying to figure out how much effort is going to take to like work on that. Like he already has an understanding, which just makes it like one less kind of step to worry about when, when building things out. So did you build this initially for, a particular client? Kind of. We didn't really have a client in mind, but it was a lot from Justin's experience being call time manager. And the code base still have references to, it was originally called CallSheet. We built a mobile app. We had everything working on that side of things. It connected to a web browser full call time capabilities. And we were hoping that if, you know, someone like Andy Bashir was going to announce that they would use that and, and give us that kind of feedback. But it was also like 2017. Uh, so very, very early for someone like that to announce. The plan completely shifted as soon as we started talking to people in the space that we knew in Louisville, Kentucky, and kind of morphed into, into what you see now. What software was he accustomed to using? when he was doing call time paper <laughs> that's not much software no no it was a he it was a two inch thick binder of paper they were using ngp and they were printing the ngp call sheets and updating this binder as they went so that when the candidate was like traveling they could basically pull a record out like in a car hand them the binder and they could make the call between Events. That's fairly a fairly old school way of using NGP. It used to be actually in the beginning, as people were transitioning from paper to computers, both on on the field side and on the fundraising side, that was a more common way that political people were comfortable. Um, it's interesting that that was still going on. 
<laughs> I think even for the campaign deputy side, we we still have people using the paper call sheets because our old logo is on the paper call sheets. And we had someone tell us that. And we're like, why are you using paper call sheets? <laughs> so there's a big difference between having this idea to make a call sheet application and kind of working on that together to turning it into a company. What are the steps on the tech and product side and on the marketing and sales side that are part of the early story of this company? Oh, this is going to be a funny part. So <laughs> we we were working on call sheet is what we were calling it. And we were talking to people and they wanted us to add in basically like CRM functionalities. We knew that we we couldn't call it call sheet because that would like really paint us in a corner of what what that would be. So the the name campaign deputy, we were just kind of like thinking of different names it could be. And we wanted a name to kind of sound like friendly and that we were there to be helpful to you. And that's where the the deputy came from, which is like, we're just like a finance deputy. Like we're here to help. We're here to be a part of that for the campaign. So we created that. Thankfully, the domain name was available. That's so rare. <laughs> yeah. We registered the domain name, .com, .org, everything. And then we formed the, the business. We filed it with the Secretary of State of Kentucky. We got bank accounts. That was like early. Was that an LLC or a... C Corp or a S Corp or LLC. So between like January and April of 2017 is when we got all the paperwork going. And then that's when we really started to build out the MVP. And we were literally building out the MVP like over tacos at the local Qdoba because they had Wi-Fi. So we would just meet there, have lunch, like work on things. At one point I took like pieces of paper and I cut them up into like input fields and like had Justin basically like put them on a page of how he would kind of order things just to build out the user interface. And so like we had a, a really great time doing that. Were you guys still employed full time at that time? Yes. Which is why we made sure to do it at lunch. <laughs> so we were doing that. We were talking to people. We were doing like product demos with people. We were trying to get feedback. At one point, we've met like former candidates and we had screen. We took printed out pictures of the app to them and said like, hey, would you use this? And they're like, yeah, it looks great. You should probably think of this, this and this. So we launched officially in July of 2017. And at that time, we just got approved through the Microsoft BizSpark program. So that got us free Microsoft licenses for the first, I think, like a couple years. And we'll circle back on that because that ended up changing. And so you were built on SQL Server or something? You were built as a Microsoft app? Yes. Yeah, we're the Microsoft framework, pretty much. .NET Core had just been kind of released at that time, which is like the newest version of, of .NET. I have like tons of experience in SQL Server. I also have experience in like Oracle, but like we did not want to go down that route. And then we thought like we wanted something to be stable and low maintenance. And that's the tech stack we knew the most of. And that's the tech stack we had the most like support in my personal network. 
of people to say like, hey, I have this question. Could you help me with this? We built the whole thing in SQL Server.net. And then we were like, well, we need to host this now. And Microsoft has pretty strict hosting requirements for SQL Server in that you can host it in Azure or pay more money for the other ones. And at this time, we were bootstrapped. We're like, how are we going to launch this at the lowest cost possible? So we found there's an entire industry of refurbishing servers that go off a three-year lease. And a company will come in, wipe the drives. Instead of shredding them, they'll resell them at a lower cost to somebody else. And so we bought these like new to us servers for like a thousand bucks, found a local data center, put them in, and we were able to like start the thing at basically fixed cost of under $200 a month. So you co-located instead of going to the cloud, someone else maintaining yes. the servers. Yeah. Was that a good decision? It It is, but we also do use a lot of cloud features. There are some things we should not host, and there are some things we should not try to build. So we, we heavily use a lot of the like pay-per-use Amazon features. Early on, we were using like a lot of those. So like the initial ActBlue integration we did back in 2017 use like Amazon's queuing technology for all of it. It's very common for software product companies to have to write and rewrite and sometimes even change the tech stack to move with the times or to suit programmers that are available. What, what's your experience with whether that first choice held up and what have you done over time to keep your code base where you want it to be? There are some things that have managed to stay stable that we we haven't really had to touch which is great for for a small company we've managed to rewrite the other parts that like scale up significantly with the campaign so we launched imports which imports sound easy but it's very complicated when you're trying to match data you're trying to import contributions disbursements so we've rewritten that a couple times, some just on providing a better customer experience, some on performance, some on how do we find people? You know, how do you find if a Joshua Bartley exists in a database for a database that has 10 million people is different than if you have a database with a thousand people. But then on the the email side, I mean, I think we're probably like seven or eight kind of refactors in on that. We initially launched email with a kind of like branded SynGrid portal. So like we didn't really have to manage it, but it was not a good integration. So you couldn't target people that you sent an email to that you called yesterday. That just wasn't good. And then brought that all in house and quickly realized like email is a massive amount of data more than I think most people think about. Recently, we just moved all of that out of SQL Server. You and I both know like SQL Server costs per processor <laughs> and it gets very expensive. But also from like a scaling standpoint, none of the large email marketing software out there like Clavio, 
message bird or anything like that, none of them are using something like a SQL server. They're all using column store databases at that point. Got it. Um, so once you launched, who did you find for early clients? So we found a few through some campaign consultants. One of our first clients and longest clients uh, is the Louisville Democratic Party. It was great because we're in Louisville, so it was really easy. We went over, talked to them. Uh, they didn't really have a CRM at that point. They were doing things by paper. They kind of wanted to like upgrade that. We found uh, a few people, like one person was running for her like Congress in a conservative district in Illinois. And then another person was running for mayor of a town in Arkansas. They were mostly mostly brand new candidates or down ballot at that point. It's a big country. There's always candidates who don't have the, the technology yet or just starting their campaign. It's one of the interesting things about the market, I think, is this constant refresh of new people that haven't made that tech decision yet. Yeah. And like at the end of the election cycle, like the whole cycle resets, essentially. You know, you've got a lot of campaigns that pause. You've got a lot of campaigns that go on to run for a different office or candidates who it's their first time running and they decide it's it's not for them. That feedback loop between a product company and its clients is very important. What were you learning from the initial clients about what you were delivering to them and how were you changing? So we learned a lot about their fundraising process. The people we even talked to, like the fundraising process would change to just a little bit. So we had to be like flexible in how we were thinking about that. There was also like people had different perceptions of like what a product should do and also what a product should look like. So we were like learning through those of like, what were they expecting? How much should we put into the aesthetic part of the system? And then how can we handle essentially 50 different ways to fundraise without individually having 50 checkboxes on a page to let you decide which way you wanted to do things. Do you feel like you had a clarity of vision about where you wanted the product to go? Or were you very much following what your customers were doing? Or how did you navigate that sort of divide in ways to conceive of it? We weren't really thinking of the product as like a long-term vision type of thing. We were thinking of it more how can we satisfy like our current customers' needs at this time? How can we get this feedback? How can we provide everything they're asking for? And it wasn't until like later when we kind of like shifted to thinking, oh, this is the product. And maybe it might not be a fit for everybody where we're actually having conversations with people who try to use it for a very niche case that's not really fundraising related. Like 2017, Josh would have been like, hey, yeah, like sign us up. But then, you know, 2019, 2020, we're like, actually, we don't think this is a good fit. Here's some other recommendations. Try out something like that. So it wasn't until like later we kind of shifted from exactly listening to the customers to, okay, how will this product evolve? And like, where is this product going? I assume that you have quit your jobs and do this full time. 
Uh, yes. So in 2017, we kind of had a little bit of a falling out with the boss at that time and basically went mostly full time on campaign deputy, but we only had like a small handful of clients. So at that time, like I took a lot of like WordPress development side jobs to basically pay for everything because like we're bootstrapped. That continued on uh, until I'd say about like 2020. The pandemic was odd for us because you're stuck at home. Everybody was looking for remote work at that time. Everything shifted to remote communication. We worked a ton on campaign deputy. I also had some like side jobs that were like three weeks at a time type of thing. So it was kind of like a mix. But now like we actually have a office in Louisville. We have employees. I go to it. Justin just moved cities. But we go into the office. We also work remote. So it's been like a shift to change like how we've worked in in the past few years. Did there come a point where sales got easier? Does sales ever get easier? <laughs> I mean, my experience was at a certain point, I just got easy referrals from the reputation of the software back in the day. There is definitely like a network effect. And I think in this space in particular, it's definitely a like word of mouth network style, like referral business. I don't think you could put together like Facebook ads and Google ads and try to like take over the the market in that way. We've tried and it never works every time. <laughs> and we've talked to like other apps kind of in the space and they say the same thing. If we get 10% more referrals every year and kind of keep that trajectory going, like we do get more referrals. We, we talk to people, they're like, oh, I've heard about you. And that's allowed us to like grow that organically, but also through integrations, like partnerships and things like that, we can also like grow in, in those spaces. We actually have like a real, real sales process now. Like before we would just log in, pitch a demo of the product, figure out what price would fit for the customer and go from there. And now we actually have price points. We have a pricing sheet. We have a presentation deck that we go through first before we do a demo. And that's also kind of really, really helped the the sales process. So you said bootstrapped and I relate to that. I think it's actually a, a very good way to grow a company. Did you ever raise any money? We have not. So we just got a line of credit through the bank and that just helps us in case we need to like ramp up kind of quickly. We don't expect to use like much of it it's the market. We just want to have it. <laughs> and we've just been very careful about our cash flow uh, to, to get to this point. Where are you now in terms of clients? How big is the client base and what's the trajectory? Well, I won't give exact numbers. I'll keep some of those private, but I will say like revenue wise in a odd year, we're at basically like peak revenue for like end of the year for us, like years ago at our current monthly revenue. Hopefully I said that in the right way. You said way. that in a way that made me think it's growing. It, it is. It is growing. We kind of had like worst case scenario and we're like three X over what that scenario is, uh, which has allowed us to hire like a fourth person. It's growing. It's got good trajectory. 
I obviously want it to grow as fast as possible, but we're happy where it's at. And we're just basically hoping to double what we did last year, next year. What do you think has been the main factor that has allowed it to grow? Uh, I think like word of mouth has been like a big part of it. And then we, we actually invested in the like UI and user experience. It looks like an application people want to pay for. When we first launched, like there was no dashboard. We added a dashboard and they say, oh, it looks so much better. It has a dashboard. And we're like, oh, there's, there's something to this. We should think about this more. The feedback we got on the last user interface refresh was it's very pleasing to the eye, which means the last one was not pleasing to the eye. <laughs> like people didn't like looking at it. I think that's helped kind of show that it's like a mature product and like bring people in. And then also just the longevity of it. It's been around for a long time now. So people feel comfortable using it in, in their campaign. I saw an email at some point from Grassroots Analytics saying they recommended your product. Did that help? That does help. We looked at our numbers at one point and found that like a, like a large portion of our clients were also Grassroots Analytics clients. How did that happen? So we worked with Megan on the local mayor's race in Louisville. And then she moved to Grassroots Analytics. And then we basically gave them like special pricing, you know, referral deals like that kind of thing to basically get into that, um, that kind of referral. Agreement. How did you get into the compliance part of things? So we got into FEC compliance when we launched with the congressional candidate. And also in Kentucky, at that time, it was a paper form for most people. And we saw that compliance is a must-have need. Email is nice to have for some smaller campaigns. They'll do some email, but not a bunch. And then fundraising is like a must-have as well. So we knew that we had enough of the CRM that it was only an additional bit of data on the disbursement side and the debts to fill that compliance need and was able to start building like a compliance offering off of what we already had. I saw on your website something about a partnership with Action Network. It's kind of an email CRM. What's happening there? Yeah, it's it's one of our more interesting integrations we have. So we have some people that like to split their volunteer management with their fundraising. So they'll run their volunteer management and communications out of Action Network, while the fundraising team will use us for mostly everything else. So people wanted to be able to have those check and cash contributions feed into Action Network along with any new information about like volunteers to go back into campaign deputy, because maybe they're going to do a fundraising ask for that. There are actually a lot of political campaign software companies, more than people I think realize, particularly that do specific parts of it, like fundraising or field. How do you see the competition for your company? 
A good question. <laughs> if you look at the FEC vendor list for third-party vendors, like it's probably like 30 or 40 companies there, and that's probably not everybody. So obvious competition is NGP. We also see, you know, some competition with Action Network. And then there's some like complementary kind of products that are out there where we, you know, like Pindex was one recently. It's a call time app. Phone Burner is a common one that comes up a bunch. So we have an integration with that. And these tools are tools to run a call time program, but we'll still do integrations with it because we need the data to feed the rest of the fundraising program so that you can do the segmenting and all that correctly. So there's like a lot of competition there, but on the compliance side for compliance tends to be at a state level. So like some companies will only do one state for compliance, uh, very common in like California. I think it's like NetFile. And then there's some that will do like nationally IS political works kind of uh, across the board. A lot of those are also nonpartisan. So like we're, competing with them but since we only work on like the progressive side we're also like not competing with them at the same time on my show quite a while ago something called calltime.ai and then and they were acquired by pdi which is a voter file and crm company out of california you run into them and do you have any opinion i do have an opinion (laughs) i think of the best way to say it on a public podcast we saw call time ai a bunch in 2020. We have not ran across call time AI with one of our customers. And we don't know if that's on the call time AI side or just the segment of people that we're working with just are not aware of call time AI. We were a little concerned about like what PDI would end up doing in the market. But at the same time, like our viewpoint is it's not a winner catch all. Like there could be more than one person in the market. It hasn't came up since that announcement. What about Numero? You run into them? Yeah. Talked to Brian actually a, a bunch on on Twitter, or is it X? Do we call it X now? We run into them, uh, but those are typically on the like congressional side of things where they, because Numero is kind of, a lot of these call time apps kind of cater to like the larger campaigns. Uh, so we do run into them, but we haven't ever had a good chance to have kind of like a shared client to start building out an integration. One of the things that I've been paying attention to and in interviewing startups on recently is AI and politics. Have you thought about how that might be part of what you do or seen anything in AI and progressive tech that you think is interesting? From a timing perspective, I know I just saw the different unions are working on the appropriate use of AI in the digital landscape. I'm curious how the industry is going to kind of like progress, because I do know it is tough being a digital staffer in this day and age. So I do think there needs to be some like automation to make their life easier but i don't think we should have like ai like replacing people i think it should be like complementary we've used like chat gpt internally to the campaign deputy i have a subscription to microsoft copilot for github and we use that 
And it does accelerate just kind of building out features on our end. But in no means would I think it could replace like one of our full-time developers. In the progressive tech ecosystem, who else have you partnered with or works kind of complementarily with you? We're working on trying to like get more integrations. I feel like we have a friendly relationship with a lot of different political uh, tech apps uh, that are like at Netroots. There's a few at this conference right now. The DNC conference. Yes. But it's also like hard sometimes to put something on a roadmap for an integration because you don't know how much it's going to be used. And it is time and effort from both sides. I think on a roadmap, we're looking at a form integration for the run website builder. We're talking to Adam at Universe. We're actually going to swap demos and set up sandboxes for each other for an integration soon. We've got the Action Network integration. And I'm trying to think. I feel like there's I'm missing something on. We've talked to Shire also about uh, an integration. And we're just trying to figure out like the best use case for that because we're fundraising and they're messaging. But there could be a good use case of just keeping people in sync so that that information doesn't get stuck in one system, basically. So how do you think about who do you integrate with? Who do you worry about, like, finding out more about you? So, I mean, there's certain kind of paranoia, I think, in software companies about competition. Do you feel that? And how do you operate given that? When we started, I mean, I'll, <laughs> I'll be real honest. When we started, I think NGP8 came out. I think in like 2018. And I I freaked out. I was like, this is the end. How are we ever going to run this company? Like there's this better product out there. And Justin actually was like, no, we've, we've got this. We're good. We're in a good space. Don't worry. Don't panic. So he's like a calming influence, which, which helps. <laughs> I feel like I'm anxious like all the time. That kind of mindset has shifted. Hopefully everyone thinks... It's all friendly competition, you know, that kind of thing. I hope no one gets the wrong idea about us. If someone thinks we're cutthroat, like I definitely don't want anybody to feel that way. But we've kind of started shifting to like all the competition is like healthy. It's good. No one is going to have 100% of the market. Like there's going to be space for everybody. And in like my, my viewpoint, the political tech space is there's so many silos where people are afraid of doing integrations or they want to kind of build this silo themselves. But I really hope that as the space progresses, like we do more integrations with some systems that may feel like they're competing, but can also be used in like a complementary fashion. You seem to have made a decision to work with only the Democrats and not the Republicans. Why? And is that something that you will certainly hold to. When we we started, Justin and I were talking, I was like voting. I was like not really voting that much, but like in 20, I think 2014, 2016, I started voting like every time. We just kind of viewed it as like, we don't want to like help the other side. And even when we like bring on like people who are in like nonpartisan or independent campaigns, we also make sure like in those, like, are you progressive? There are some like hard no's we have, even if you're 
an independent, but you're against something, we're like, no, we're not going to work with you. We're holding to that. We will continue to hold to that. We actually have a second product uh, that is politically adjacent. It's sort of soft launching this week. And in that, like being politically adjacent, like there's still going to be like rules we're going to put in place to say like, we don't want to sponsor like hate speech through this platform. We don't want this to be used to target LGBTQ or removing abortion rights, that kind of thing. Uh, even with it being basically in like the C3, C4 space. Did you have any concern about doing an interview with me, given that I started one of your competitors back in 97, <laughs> even though I, I've been out of that a long time? Actually, I was really like excited. You reached out about doing an interview. I was like, oh, hey, I was like, we're doing an interview. This is great. But then I also talked to, well, I've been talking to him a little bit from Fracture because you were replaying one of those podcasts. And he actually was like, oh, don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. I was excited that we could do this podcast. And then the people we talked to, they're like, oh, yeah, he, it's great. It's going to go fine. And, and that interview with Fracture, which is the founder, one of the co-founders of Salsa, which used to be a competitor, I think. And I think the, they're part of the Bonterra collective at this point. <laughs> that was a great interview, actually. He was, he was very interesting. And he tells the story about how he lost control of his company due to raising money and losing control of his board. And I thought, you know, a very important story for political entrepreneurs to, to understand. So I commend that to anybody. But I'm glad that, that at least that's what you heard when you were asking around. One of the common threads with some of the progressive political tech firms I've been talking to, the more startup type ones, is participation in, with higher grounds labs. You're aware of them and and have you ever tried or would you to become part of a cohort over there? Yeah, so uh, we've got some few friends that have done that or are in their like recent cohort. Nathan and John over at Daisy Chain, who I'd also really like an integration with. And by the way, I just interviewed them and their episode will come out before yours. Okay. Yeah, they're they're great. I love what they're doing. And we we did look at higher ground labs, but we early on that kind of you were talking like paranoia and concern, that kind of thing. Like NGP is like a board member of higher ground labs. And we thought that that would be kind of like a conflict. We didn't even like reach out to them uh, about it. We just decided to like go our own way. We have talked to higher ground labs because we got on their political tech landscape with our new logo. So our designer was super happy about that. The time had kind of like already passed where if we were going to do a funding round with higher ground labs, like we were already like profitable in a stable company and just didn't feel like pursuing that. Some people it's, it's great for them. Uh, and then I think other people, if they want to go the bootstrap way, you know, you totally can. Uh, it's just kind of like a, like a personal preference. But that kind of paranoia at first definitely like played into like a huge factor of it. When I asked one of the CEOs of another company in the space that's doing well about you, I said, what question should I ask? He said, I think their product is good. Why haven't they scaled as fast as it would make sense for them? Why are they still sort of a minor player? What would be your answer to that? It's a great question. So in the first 
few years, we kind of purposely like stayed quiet. We didn't want to make a big name for ourselves. We wanted to find a way to to prove ourselves. As time has progressed, we've been more like public of what we're doing. Podcasts like this, we have done two interviews with campaigns, elections, that, you know, publicity, I think is going to help. And we've been more outbound on our sales process before it was all referrals. And now we're actually reaching out to people. We're following up. We're doing Netroots convention. We're doing this conference. So we actually have like a marketing budget. But I do think there's a like a perception in the space that we only work with down ballot candidates and our software can only handle down ballot candidates. So we're working through like trying to identify how we can like fix that perception because, you know, as early on in 2017, like our software stack is completely different than what it is today. So we're, we're trying to think of ways to kind of show like we can actually like go up market to the larger organizations and, and handle their fundraising and their, their emails at the same time. One of the things that happens when you get bigger and you get higher visibility clients is the question of security of the application comes to the fore. What have you done to protect your app from the wrong type of person getting into it? Patching is a big part. <laughs> Staying up to date on patching. We've also got different layers in our network design. We're pretty strict on that as well. You can pretty much only talk to another server over you know, either the database connection or HTTPS. We recently got cybersecurity policy, which kind of made us up level to bring it on to security products as well. And monitoring for any sort of like anomalies, the way we've built the application was the same way that I built an application in like the PCI DSS space, which passed basic like actual penetration testing from, I think it's a red team is the term where we also don't write data to the servers. Like the servers are essentially like stateless in a way. So that that's a very common thing where someone thinks they're uploading an image. It's actually a backdoor. I mean, that image goes straight to Amazon and stored in S3. Like you, you can't execute code in S3. So we've we've done like design things and also use like different services to to make sure we're protecting all that information. Have you ever had an audit, security audit? We have not because those are very expensive, but we it's like on our roadmap that we may get something like ISO, you know, 27, like 002 or a SOC 2 audit done on our systems. One of the cards that people are playing against the NGP Bonterra world lately is the ownership by a private equity firm. And they've had some layoffs that have been made public twice this year. What's your attitude towards capital coming from PE or VC? There are a variety of firms who have been bought or taken capital in that way. What do you think of them doing it? And then what would your own attitude be in the long run about it if, if, that, if you scaled to that size where it became relevant? I think it all depends on like where the like founder is or the people who own the company is. I think 
like higher ground labs does a, what I think is like a good job of like letting these companies grow. Um, I haven't really heard anything like bad from that front. I know deck sold most of the company and that got roped into the Sam Brinkman Freud. Freed, yeah. Yep. Yep. Freed. It's a risk in both ways. If you're at a point where you need to kind of scale quickly and you need that, you know, cash infusion, it's a risk that, that you don't take it. And it's also a risk that now you have someone on your cap table that could in the salsa labs case remove you from the board. I'm glad that some people are like talking about that more, but also just hoping that people through their operating agreement, make sure they protect themselves if they go that route. I've also heard some people urging that campaign software companies have policies around email that, that reduce the kind of political spam that's out there or, and try to make more ethical fundraising. Do you have position in that area? Also, another timely thing with the recent Google announcement about their policy on senders that sent more than 5,000 emails to Google addresses. So I know Action Network is 100% opt-in. We at Campaign Deputy know that there are like cold emails that will happen. Emails go out for call time. We have people who upload lists of people they're inviting to an event. You know, any CRM that has an import functionality will get non-opted in emails into the system and will send an email at some point. We've worked with our current vendor and they've asked us, like, what is your policy? And as part of, you know, maintaining that vendor relationship, we do place limits on how many emails someone can send per day. That limit is solely based on their email deliverability number. They have a high number that limit can be increased a handful of times. You know, we had someone who said, hey, I have this list. It's my list. It's opt in. It's for the candidate. I want to send this list. It's 40,000 emails. I was like, well, this is weird. It's a district county prosecutor race in the middle of like Kentucky. Like that's like the entire county. <laughs> Where would this come from? And they were like, oh, no, it's 100% opt in. Trust me. It had, you know, web TV email addresses in that list. The bounce rate was 70%. And our our system caught that, you know, they could only send 2,500 at that time. It caught that and we're like, you can't do this. And they're like, well, we just want to push through. I was like, there's no pushing through. This is not how email works. So we've had some like bad players in the space. There's also a ton of friction if you like enforce like 100% opt-in, people will just leave and people will then make up a reason about why we can't handle their email and then go to our competitor and then pay triple the rate to send out the emails and get like pretty much similar results. So it is a sticky situation (laughs) that we are still trying to like navigate. And I think the spam filters are going to regulate that space faster than anything else will from you know our perspective, our competitors' perspective, or even our vendors' perspective. Another somewhat controversial topic potentially in, in our industry is offshoring of the workforce. You're not at that 
stage. And I don't think my old company has done that, although who knows what their plans are. But there are some of the firms that have their developers or some subset of their developers in other countries. Do you think there's a problem with that at all? I think there's a a good way to handle that. And there's also like a bad way to handle that. I I quit when I was working at Heartland Payment Systems. It got bought by a company called Global Payment Systems. And I found out that they were laying off my entire team, offshoring everything to India. And I would then be responsible for the entire outsource team at that point. And I, I was not okay with that because they were laying off these like people who have spent 80 hours a week in the past getting these launches going. And it was purely for, for cost. They actually ended up coming back and hiring, rehiring some of those people because it didn't work out. If we as a company ever expand into additional countries, like we would, of course, have to hire people in those countries. It's not something we're looking to now. We're moving to a global workforce. And there are ways to to hire people remotely that you just got to be considerate of both the people in your own country and the people you're hiring like in in the remote countries as well. Another thing that isn't probably relevant at four-person scale, but there's been a push in our space to unionize the different companies and different players that are of scale to better represent the employees and, and give collective bargaining. Would you entertain that? It's definitely something that we think would be on our roadmap. We hope that we build an environment that our employees don't feel like that's the only way they can get what they're asking for. But we do think that at some point, just kind of like in solidarity with the labor unions, that there could be a time where there's a campaign deputy union. How has this been for you? Is this better than the jobs you had before? Are you waking up every day thinking, this is what I want to keep doing? What's your fit to this enterprise that you've put together? It's changed a lot, like over the years, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, you know, startups are hard at one point or multiple points. I have definitely like cried at my desk thinking like, what in the world am I doing? And then miraculously, like the next day, someone calls and says, Hey, I have 10 clients I want to bring you. Can you handle it? And we're like, Oh, Hey, everything's fine. So there's like a lot of podcasts I listen to that kind of have uh, the same kind of ebb and flow. They talk about that. There's good days or bad days. The new kind of adventure for me is on being more public, you know, getting out of Louisville. We really haven't had like a face to the company. And that's kind of like a fun, completely outside of my experience. And I just like love learning and try new things. So it, it kind of like fits into all of that. And at the same time, the scale side of things on the email, like that's a really hard problem to solve. Like I was talking to a friend who manages ETL pipelines for large corporations. And he said, why are you trying to handle a billion rows in a database table? <laughs> I was like, email, 
It's always email. <laughs> He's like, that sounds terrible. I was like, no, it's really fun. It's it's really hard, but it's really fun. So like those are kind of things that, that keep me excited and going. And also just knowing that I've helped in these like political spaces. It was so weird being at election night when it was announced that like Andy Bashir won. It was like, this is a completely weird experience. Like, how do I feel about this? But it feels good to actually be kind of a part of the solution. What was weird about seeing him win? Well, it was just like a like a mix of emotions where you were part of this, but also like you were the software that they were using to make this happen. It wasn't only because of you. It was because of this like huge group of people that all got together to make this happen. I'd never experienced that before. And it was like the largest election of the time that I was a part of. So it was just like a mix of emotions. I was like, brand new to me to, to experience. Have you ever heard of a guy named Chris Patton, who was the son of the governor of Kentucky who had a campaign software app? In the early days of, of, of NGP, when I was coming up and running it, he kind of owned the state party compliance market. And in the long run, we, we acquired his firm. But have you run into him and his reputation? Justin has brought him up on multiple occasions. The Kentucky Registry of Election Finance had a kind of old way of importing data into the system for the electronic files, and they had that software. We heard about being acquired, and it was like, were they part of Campaign Toolbox that was like Kentucky and Florida compliance filing? Or am I thinking of someone else? I don't remember the name Campaign Toolbox. Okay. That names came up multiple times regarding the compliance, and I feel like it was PT something. Okay. Did the Kentucky Democratic Party use them at oh, one yeah. point? Oh, yeah. And yeah. so did at least 20 state parties. And he had some campaigns. Like There was a point where probably our firms were of similar size, but his kind of stayed constant. When I heard about you coming out of Kentucky, I'm like, it's, <laughs> it's Patton again. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, we've seen this history before. We know how this yeah. happens. <laughs> <laughs> what should I have asked you that I didn't? Uh, I mean, that's... Great question. We've covered a lot. Of course, as soon as this podcast is over, I'm going to be like, oh, you should have asked me like five different things like I can't think of. But no, I think all the questions have been great. I can't think of anything. Is there any other questions that, that you have for me? I'm probably going to feel the same way when I get off, but it's been a great pleasure to talk to you. I appreciate you taking the time. Is there anything else you want to say? I feel like I need to give a quick pitch for campaign deputy. So if anybody is looking for a serum, digital and compliance tool, you can check us out at campaigndeputy.com. We have price tiers that range from, you know, people raising under $50,000 up to people raising tens of millions of dollars and have handled clients of scale all between those and expect to keep growing. All right. Thanks much. That was Joshua Bartley. He's at campaigndeputy.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn 
more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.